Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we have been having in-depth conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. Season 5 had some great adaptations, like our Meryl Streep Oscar-nominated performances series. We covered adaptations like Kramer vs. Kramer, Sophie's Choice, and The French Lieutenant's Woman. It's a real Sophie's Choice between those books. <laughs> you see what, I, <laughs> see what I did there? Uh, yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's quite at the level of a real Sophie's Choice. We also did Snowpiercer for our Bong Joon-ho series, adapted from the French graphic novel Le Transpersonnage. Man, I love that movie. We had our two-part 1939 series that included adaptations like Gone with the Wind, Ninochka, The Women, and The Hound of the Baskervilles. A number of those 1939 movies, like Goodbye, Mr. Chips, also tied into our recent 1940 Academy Award Best Picture nominee series. Our naughty children horror series had creepy adaptations like The Bad Seed, Village of the Damned, The Innocents, and Children of the Corn. For our Hayao Miyazaki series, we talked about his take on Lupin III with the Castle of Cagliostro, plus his own The Wind Rises. Some great listener choice picks, too. Viridiana and The Great Escape. And for our David Mamet Wright's series, The Verdict, The Untouchables, and Glengarry Glen Ross. Plus, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang from our Shane Black series adapted from Brett Halliday's novel, Bodies Are Where You Find Them. Dive into the sources for all of these at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support the show. Check out thenextreel.com slash originals today and find your next read. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Ten Cloverfield Lane, Andy. Jeez. I know. I only How just long ago did that come out? Like months. two years ago? Two years? <laughs> Let's not be gross. No. All right, it's two months. months. It's a couple of months. I finally got around to seeing it, and so now I know the whole thing. And, you know, we spoil movies, so there it is. I got to tell you, first of all, I in, in terms of a mini-review, uh, there were some things that I liked. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I did. I, I, I did not like uh, that it was in the Cloverfield universe. I think I would have liked it much better the more I kind of reflect on it if it was still called The Cellar and it was treated as original IP. Like, I, I it would have been a, a better movie for me. But here's the thing. It's, it's not really in the Cloverfield universe. I mean, it's in the Cloverfield universe by name, but nothing about it ties it to the first film. I know, nothing. except for when you start watching the filmmakers talk about it and they start opening this little can of multiverse worms. That, you know, maybe this is also in the same multiverse where there are monsters and maybe they're connected and oh my goodness. Like, there, there, it's out there. It's out there that, that there is a possibility that somewhere in the narrative these could be connected. Even though, of course, you know, I, I don't know, when did, when did Cloverfield come out? 2006? Two? Niner? <laughs> <laughs> 60, are you a truck driver now? 629 Niner. It, it was in there. It was a decade ago. It came out 2000, 2008. 2008, so n- almost a decade ago. Uh, and, and clearly, this is the Cloverfield Lane is not a film in which monsters exist because they looked pretty surprised at the end. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like that was a, that was a surprising thing. And yet I have this ugly feeling that there that there is someone out there who's going to try and connect these things together, and that's going to bug me. I think they did a pretty good job. I feel like it was a little bit out of balance with the end. It was it was a a bit too much of a of a twist at the end, and I really liked the thriller stuff in the bunker. Uh, and I want I could have used that just being resolved on its own. So nah, it was fine. I wanted to I wanted to love it. I think that's why yeah, I, I stalled on seeing it because it just didn't move me like I wanted to be moved. <laughs> I wanted to be moved, Andy. I I can see what you're saying. I don't think it bugged me as much as you did. I thought it was just kind of a fun romp, but uh I guess I didn't watch any of the behind the scenes stuff to see all the multiverse connections and whatnot. I just enjoyed it for what it was. Don't. And I won't. And mister. how? Do you have any news? Nothing I'm going to share with you. <laughs> Shall we tell the people where we're from? <laughs> where are we from? Real everybody, I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, and we spoil movies tonight on the show. The first in our vacation challenge, in which I bring forth Paranorman. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us over at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or join us over on YouTube. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at the Next Reel. 
And Andy, we got uh, we got a little follow up with the blot spot. That's right. Ben says the Great Escape is a film I'm confident will improve in my opinion on a rewatch. It was good the first time, but the overall experience fell short of great because I had false expectations of a happy ending. I didn't know the history beforehand. I love the acting performances, and I can absolutely see why this is a classic that people love. Your rank fifty nine, my rank forty nine. Which is great to hear that it's so high on his list, um, and he's still confident that it's actually going to improve for him. So uh, there it is. Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers. I can't. We're like this is a bottom of the barrel week. Is that what it is? It's we're we're hitting a point where it's getting a little uh, a little tough with. Uh, um, the trailer selection. Jeez. I feel like it's like, uh, yeah, I'm struggling trying to find something that I want to talk about. I know. I, I was actually surprised you didn't, you, you haven't picked the uh, Mo- Mona, Mona? Moana? Moana? Well, because it's just a teaser. I, you know, you know just yeah, like, I know. Just like the, the Tom Hanks, uh, you know, uh, Da Vinci Code Part 3, I want to wait till there's a full t- uh, trailer. Yeah. All right. Feels like, I mean, that's like a minute and a half. It's a trailer enough. It's only All a right. tease. All right. Well, anyway, you, I can't believe you are bringing forth the Wahlberg. Well, I know you love him so much, Pete. I love him in some stuff. Bright Shining Boy. <laughs> so so go ahead. What's your trailer? So I'm doing Deepwater Horizon. That's right. <laughs> Deepwater Horizon. We're down to that. No, I mean... <laughs> You know, I don't want to poo-poo this movie. I, I, You know, it's based on a true story. Obviously, it was a, a, a quite a situation. Uh, Peter Berg is directing this film, and uh, it's based on the true story of the oil rig Deepwater Horizon when it kind of went up in flames and everybody on board had to figure out what to do. Uh, screen stories by Matthew Sand, written by Matthew Sand and Matthew Michael Carnahan, starring Mark Wahlberg, Dylan O'Brien, Kate Hudson, Kurt Russell... Gina Rodriguez, John Malkovich. Uh, it's just it's it's quite a, a decent cast of these people as uh, Mark Wahlberg, who is trying to find a dinosaur bone for his daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love how they kind of come up with the little story thing there. Um, is trying to figure out what the heck to do when it, the worst oil spill in U.S. history, when Deepwater Horizon the rig exploded, uh, April 2010. And uh, you know, I mean, it looks. Uh, exciting. It looks interesting. It also looks kind of like every uh, kind of true story hero journey that I've seen on celluloid before. And so uh, it's like, I guess that's my issue with it. It doesn't look like it's anything new. I I, I, I think that I could very easily say I would probably sit and watch this and not have any issues with it. But, you know, I'm not going to run out and, and chase it down either. So I, I guess that's where I stand with this one. You know, it, it looks interesting. It looks like a, an interesting story about this uh, this uh, accident that happened. I'm sure it would be, uh, you know, interesting to watch. I just, you know, I'm like, okay, well, if it's on TV, I'll watch it. I, you know, I'll rent it. I don't think it's something I'll run out to theaters for. But, uh, you know, that's that's my trailer. I guess I don't have much more to say about it. What did you think of it? <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> really I'm selling it this week, huh? Really selling it. Did you see Lone Survivor? <laughs> I missed that. I missed that. That was another one that falls into the same camp. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, well, and then in Peter, like Berg's, uh, Peter Berg's next film, of course, is Patriot's Day, uh, which is the the uh, story Boston of bombing, Boston bombing, Boston marathon bombing. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm more interested to see that because I worked on the 
the TV movie version of that yeah. the inside the uh, Hunt for the Boston Bombers. Yeah. So I, you know, I for for me it feels very much like um, the Wahlberg Berg uh, partnership is they they have a a thing with these kinds yes. of movies and and telling these stories. I'm I the the trailer the effects are I think what's going to be you know that's going to be why you see it. I think it's going to be a a gorgeous movie about fire. It's going to put you right in there. Yeah. I mean, we're going to be in places that, although I had a little bit of trouble kind of separating this film from uh, Man of Steel when the the rig, you know, uh, falls apart and there's flame and falling steel. Like, I'm not, I wasn't sure from the trailer how much better things have gotten in the last, you know, five, six years. So I I don't know. I'm, I I guess I'm a little bit ambivalent on it too. Um, My, my, I saw the, the trailer came up uh, when we saw Now You See Me Too during, um, uh, for that one, for for this uh, this film, Deepwater Horizon, and uh, both of my kids, interestingly, were right on top of it. They want to see it like nobody's business. What's that yeah, about? What is that about? Uh, it's true story of a hero. All right. Well, there you go. When's it come out? Uh, this one rolls out here in the U.S. September 30th. It actually starts. It looks like it's going to premiere in Fi- in the Philippines September 28th. And then it'll uh, pretty much everywhere it's releasing uh, by the end of September, except for Italy, France, and Japan, who have to wait uh, through October and November. Mm. My trailer, Andy, I like you. I'm going. Uh, I'm, I'm stepped back several weeks for this trailer, and I, I'm a little surprised I haven't talked about it yet. Assassin's Creed. Uh, now, are you gaming any at all these days? Not really. I I know you though. If the right circumstances were to arise. The- you would disappear for weeks. You could be gone. The reason I don't is because, uh, yes, I, you'll never see me again. Yeah, no, it's in you. It's, it's in you, Andy. It's there. <laughs> it's there. Uh, <laughs> so I, I'm a big fan of the Assassin's Creed series. I really like these games. I have had so much fun running around these incredible, I mean, meticulously crafted um, you know, c- classical cities. I, I r- deeply enjoy it. I enjoy the fighting. I enjoy everything about it. I've had a ball in this series. Uh, I play with my kids. It's just, it's great. And so when I heard Assassin's Creed was going to be made into a movie, I was really disappointed because I thought they're going to break it. They're going to break it. It's going to be ruined forever. And then I saw that, goodness, how did they get Michael Fassbender? What? <laughs> right. That he's playing. I don't know. He's playing the assassin, Marion Cotillard. How about Jeremy Irons? How about Brendan Gleeson? How about Michael Kenneth Williams? Uh, I mean, Andy, is this the great simultaneous sellout of the year? Is that what has happened? All of these actors and actresses have decided we're just going to phone it in on the same movie. It's happened. It's it really is strange. I don't even know what to say about the fact that they're all in it. Except, uh, you know, I hope they enjoyed the script. Uh, maybe they just all play the game and are like, oh, this will be a fun one. <laughs> I mean, there there have been uh, big disasters with a lot of, uh, a lot of A cast in it before. So, uh, you know, <laughs> this could be another one. There's some things that are going for it. Justin Kurzel. Uh, is the um, is the director, and he did uh, Macbeth, 2015's Macbeth, uh, which, uh, did you see this one? Nope. Worth seeing. Definitely worth seeing. Hmm. Uh, Bill, Col- uh, Bill College, Collage, Collage, and Adam Cooper as writers. Uh, they did, um, you know, Exodus, Gods and Kings, 
they're a they're a, a team, and so they've got uh, Tower Heist and Accepted and uh, uh, Allegiant. Uh, they're on the uh, the Allegiant team, so not a. They've got you know probably ten credits each of them under their their belts, but um, they're not complete noobs. Uh, neither is uh, Justin Kurzel, and this cast is pretty great. So all of that added to the fact that it's based on a a really fun property. I think Jeremy Irons is hoping it's his next Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, Jesus. It's not Dungeons. It, it, it's Dungeons and Dragons is sort of old news. What he's really thinking is the next. Uh, what was it? The the more recent one, Carvajal, and uh, it was the, another dragon one. You don't remember what I'm talking about? Uh I don't know. And Brendan Gleeson's like maybe you know following up Smurfs too. I need another fun one to jump into. Andy, like you just make everything worse. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just uh, I'm just trying to temper expectations here. You're doing a good job. You're saying, inner child, get in the box. <laughs> get in the box. Get in the box. Aragon. Aragon is what I'm thinking. If, there you go. If I were offered the chance to be in Dungeons & Dragons back then, I probably would have done it too. In a heartbeat. <laughs> yes, you would have. Sean Connery probably thought, um, <laughs> uh, what was the one? The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen looked like a fun one too. <laughs> Yes. I'll shut up now. <laughs> yes, you should. You see what I mean, though, about the giant, the grand collective sellout? That's It could be Assassin's Creed this year. Uh, we will know on uh, December 21st, 2016 in the U.S. Merry Christmas could be a failure. <laughs> uh, it is a grand, o- broad, open, wide open international release um, uh, starting in on December 21st. We've got a couple of uh, unknown dates, Indonesia, Portugal, Spain, and South Africa. But uh, the 21st kickstarts kick the worldwide release through Argentina January 19th. So uh, it's it's coming. It's coming big. It's coming IMAX. It's, uh, it's, they're doing the whole circuit. I hope it, I hope it kills at the box office. Meet Norman. Can't you be like other kids your age? His parents don't get him. He's probably up there fiddling with his Ouija or his orb. Harry. His sister doesn't like him. You are such a loser. And the kids at school. Look, it's abnormal. Always pick on him. (laughs) But he does have some friends. Norman, wait up. I like to be alone. So do I. Let's do it together. It's just that most of them Good morning. aren't exactly alive. How's it hanging? <laughs> Haven't heard that one before. Do you see ghosts like all the time? <gasps> Who's a good boy? Uh, that's not his chin. <laughs> From the makers of Coraline. The witch's ghost is going to wake up tonight. And when she does, she'll raise the dead. You've got to use your gift of talking to the dead to stop it. This is crazy. Do I look crazy to you? Uh... There's nothing wrong with being scared, Norman. As long as you don't let it change who you are. Paranorman. Paranorman, Andy, 2012. A misunderstood boy takes on ghost zombies and grown-ups to save his town from a centuries-old curse. Uh, this one comes as part of our Vacation Challenge series. That's right. While you are listening to this, Andy and I are taking some time off. So, howdy from the lake. <laughs> that's, what this, that's what this is. 
and you had challenged me for this vacation uh, challenge to come up with uh, a film that I love that showcases the best in stop-motion animation. And I looked everywhere uh, to do that. I almost did Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer, Andy. <laughs> that would have been a very I know short. it probably wouldn't have fit, but a uh, short show, but, you know, Peter Gabriel. Yeah. We could have done a frame-by-frame. Um, frame. That's right. <laughs> we could have done a whole podcast series. That's right. <laughs> we should have done that, a spin-off series, a frame-by-frame analysis of Sledgehammer. Probably be a hit. Coming soon. You know, um, stop motion is a funny thing. And and just in, in kind of reading up on stop motion, it's a, it's a fascinating art form in itself. It, it, historically, you know, we talked about some of the very early stop motion when we first announced this challenge. Um, and it, it that that it really wasn't an, an art form in Europe. It was a foundational tool of storytelling, um, you know, out, leading out of the late 1800s into the 1900s. Whereas the U.S. was really much more defined by straight up cell animation, right? And um, and stop motion in the U.S. was had been uh, shoved into the visual effects department, right? That's where we get the Harryhausen, and we get the you know we get some of the great early film works of stop motion. Um, and so that that sort of bifurcation of the art form really is really telling, and you can kind of see how the European use of of stop motion uh, kind of evolved as a storytelling tool, and and not just as a utility player, um, as as we saw it in the foundational years of, of visual effects. And I thought I think that's really interesting. Um, I, I think it's a stunning art form myself. I think it takes a, a, an incredible mental agility to maintain not just the mathematics of frame computation, you know, and capturing the right number of frames, but the right speed of action to achieve weight and velocity by hand as you're moving these little creatures, just these little increments, you know, minute increments at a time. That is mind-bending to me. I cannot fathom it. Uh, and to be able to do it in in such a way as to capture you know really life in these things and and sort of luminance I think is is a pretty special talent. So that's what led me back to like I mean I think these guys are doing some of the very best work technically and artistically right now um, in the field. It's pretty easy to say because there aren't a whole lot of <laughs> people who are really doing this. And you know Travis Knight, uh, the CEO of Leica says, uh, you know, the odds have really never been tilted in our favor, but, you know, here we are. Why would we do this in stop motion? It is the hardest, most complicated form of animation there is, uh, but we do it because we love it. And and that, I think, is really clear when you look at, at a film like Paranorman and like any of the films that they do um, out of Leica. And they're right down the street from my house. It's Leica is actually the... Um the predecessor to Will Vinton Studios. In the late 90s, they were trying to find some more funds to do movies and uh, trying to get, went to investors, including Nike's owner, Phil Knight, who uh, invested, and his son, Travis, started working as an animator. And then, uh, yeah, in 2002, he uh, acquired the company. And so Phil Knight uh, is the, uh, is the co, uh, co-founder and chairman and uh, his son is the president and CEO. I think they're incredible. I know they're building. I've driven past it uh, however many, you know, countless times and I've never I've never knew that they were in it. Now you know. And now you can stalk them. 
I'm totally going to stop. Get ready, Leica. <laughs> I'm coming. That's awesome. Uh, so, you know, I speaking then of Paranorman, uh, I think this film is great. And in researching it, I I was really excited about all the other people that I thought were going to really like it. And there are so many people who don't. And it made me mad. I don't get that. <laughs> I know. I know. This is this is a really strong film. The story I think is really uh clever. I think that they made a really interesting choice in making kind of a a goosebumps type of horror film for kids, you know? I mean, they have zombies, they have uh witches, they have uh ghosts. It's it's really creepy. Um and but it's it's all at a level that I think it it is a little creepy for kids. But I don't I, mean, I don't know based on my own children, it's not too scary for them. Like they they can get into it without um, without you know crossing a line into out and out horror and nightmares. You know it's not that place. And Coraline was also kind of there. Um, although it was, you know, when that one came out, my kids were younger and I was like, you know what? I don't think I can take my daughter to this one until she's a little older. Cause she was three mm-hmm. at the time. It's like, <laughs> I think she'll, that's a little, a little young. young, but, um, yeah, it, it's just one of those things where I think that, um, uh, you know, the, the people putting this project together, um, really found a nice way to, uh, to kind of take this, uh, the artistry of stop motion animation, and put it forth in a really unique story that uh, that kind of also felt like it was um, part of something in the past, you know. It, I mean, and the stop motion techniques already kind of um, have that feel a, a little bit, and I think kind of going for that uh, that a little bit of that '50s horror vibe. I think it was a it, it was kind of a nice blend of seeing all of this working together uh, in this mm-hmm. in this wonderful story. Have you ever worked on a stop motion project at all? Have you ever done anything in stop motion? I've never done it. It's it takes an incredible amount of patience. I've had some students who have done it, and uh, they start, and then they realize how difficult it is, and they never end up going for nearly as long as they need to in order to actually make it effective. You know, the thing that they plan that's going to be three minutes ends up being thirty seconds <laughs> because they don't yeah, realize right. just how much work it takes to actually make these things move the way they need to. I mean, it really right. is a process. Um, I do have a, a buddy from college, actually, who has been doing stop motion um, since then. And he has done a lot of uh, really interesting short films in stop motion and has uh, you know developed feature scripts for stop motion stories that he wants to make. Um, and he does it really well. He comes up with really um, off-the-wall creations, really unique creatures, and I think that's something that stop motion kind of allows for. I think that there is something that's a little a little more off with stop motion. And so I think that these guys are able to get away with things that just seem a little uh, kookier, I guess is a word for it. And certainly in this film, you look at the character design that, uh, that they came up with here, and these characters are all strange looking. I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of Rango. You know, it's just let's come up with the, the right. weirdest and ugliest characters that we can and, and go with it. And I, I think because it was in the world of stop motion, it kind of seemed okay. Yeah, I think so too. And you know, you mentioned that it's it was easier for your kids. I think part of that, you know, the the texture that you get, the sort of natural weight that you get with stop motion actually makes it 
uh, that much more sort of terrifying the the because it it does look real even the best sort of cg in in a cg animated film doesn't yet look real and so i think that's that's one of the things that really has has stymied my kids on some of these films and and did early on was that they did they looked too scary um you know when they were already seeing things you know animated films that i thought were scarier uh, but they they wanted nothing to do with this, uh, you know, the dead walking. And my my sense is it's it's because of the the sort of veracity of the effect. Yeah, it's one of those funky things where it's like there's a blend of the horror. Uh, but you know, I don't know. I, I I guess I'm so torn because you know why does Goosebumps work so well? I mean, it ha- it has all the same sorts of things. You know, why does a movie when I was a kid? Um, uh, oh, geez, what was that? Um, movie a watcher in the woods um you know that was a kind of a kids horror movie that really creeped me out as a kid but um you know i i still loved it i still totally ate everything up you know the narek and all all that wacky stuff that i still remember from that film or or mr boogity on disney uh you know disney had the uh tv show what whatever wonderful world of disney um mm-hmm. uh, you know i think that a horror for kids has kind of always been around. And I think um, it, it really kind of, I I think it helps kids, uh, you know, get in touch with those emotions and just find find that sense of uh, just kind of that different, uh, those different elements in the world. And I mean, I don't know. I, I think that it's uh, good for kids to have little doses of it. I mean, I'm not saying go watch Hostel with them, but things like this I think are great. <laughs> it's good for kids. <laughs> Come on, kids, let's go watch The Shallows. <laughs> the uh, the script by uh, Chris Butler, uh, he started working on it 18 years ago. Uh, for me, from the very opening credits, I know I'm, I'm just, I'm in good hands. It feels very much like a guy who is who understands the horror tropes and knows how to make them funny and, uh, and squishy and, uh, you know, sound good and... Just plenty of jump scares and and lots of fun in the process. Well, and he knows how to have fun. He knows how to do it for kids. Right from the beginning, you've got, you know, um, this kind of old horror movie that Norman is watching. And, you know, the zombie sticks his head through the door. It's like brains. And the woman screams. The zombie's hands reach through the door. And then the zombie's feet reach through the door. It's like so (laughs) nonsensical. But it's like that level of comedy that I think... Lets you know, okay, there. This is scary, but they're really also doing this just because it's fun. And I think, I think that Butler knew that when he was writing. And I, you know, he he clearly knows his horror. He puts lots of nods in. There's an officer, uh, Sheriff Hooper, uh, Bub the dog uh, after uh, Bub from Day of the Dead. There's that great uh, um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre shot when the camera pans over to to reveal the big house. The you know John Bryan has the nice dose of the the John Carpenter Moog synthesizer music in here. There's that shot from Halloween. There's a shot from Friday the Thirteenth. There's so many things that that he's pulling from as he puts this story together, um, not just as writer but also as director to really show uh, you know people who are kind of grown ups and have seen those other things that this is a guy who kind of um, welcomes all of that stuff and and makes it really fun for the kids. Yeah, it, you know, it's it's also shows that he's he really has a sense of of uh, you know how to put a childlike identity at the center of this 
film. I mean, the film is, is insofar as it's about a kid who can speak to the dead, it's a kid who is speaking to the dead largely because he's, he's lonely and he doesn't know how to fit in. I mean, it's a story of him trying to, trying to fit in in spite of the, the cultural norms of his community going against him, which is, is, you know, it's one of those stories that's well-trod. I mean, we've seen a lot of these kinds of stories. Uh, but in this case, I think it's a script that works so well uh, and, and doesn't bore us uh, because it is at the center of the the way it is presented and the the sound and the art of the stop motion, uh, I, I think all of that works in favor of of getting this uh, this you know young boy identity film on the screen. Yeah. What do you think about these criticisms around the the sexuality in the film? Uh, it introduces a uh, the the older brother of of the the friend character. It turns out is uh, at the end of the film is openly gay, um, and uh, the, that caused quite a stir. Uh, plus, you have the, plus uh, you have Neil freeze framing on a on his mom's aerobics video. <laughs> Yes, yeah. So uh, nods to you know uh, sexuality, budding sexuality, and and so the criticism, and not you know not at all to to discount the fact that there's there is it, it's a horror film for kids. There are there's the dead in it. There are malevolent creatures, uh, and and uh, you know it's it's discussing uh, adults in you know adults hanging a witch a young girl who is a young girl they murder a young girl in in that that is the story that this whole thing is based on it it deals with some really aggressively adult concepts in some cases and so there was a lot of controversy around this what is your take on these criticisms well i think it's valid i mean i i think that it's valid to to bring these things up the thing that uh i guess you say when you look at a film like this that actually brings those things up is, you know, I, I'm not saying that you have to like, as a, as a, as a uh, responsible adult, you're going to open up conversations with your kids and kind of have these chats with them. But I think as a responsible adult, I think, you know, all of this stuff is a part of the world. And I think what it does is allow you to, as your kid starts questioning these sorts of things, it allows you to kind of have conversations about it. And, and I think, um, I don't know. I, I guess I think it's uh, I think it's very uh, valid to have in a story. And like I said, I mean, you know, I, I I don't know. Goosebumps is out there. There's so many things out there that is kind of horror for kids. So I I don't I don't know. I guess I just don't uh, I, I I don't know. I don't see some of those problems. I, I feel like there are ways to have these conversations with them. You know, it's it's something that I always think about, even just you know turning the news on in the morning while we're all eating breakfast. And it's constantly murder, murder, death, this happened, that happened. It's all violent, horrible stuff. And my kids are sitting there eating breakfast. And I'm like, should I turn the news off and just not have that on while I'm sitting here with my kids? Like, you know, where's the level of responsibility? And, you know, we've kind of decided to have it on. And then, you know, if if conversations come up about some of these things, then we will talk about it. And it's, you know, I don't know. It's a, it's a tricky level of how you deal with these sorts of things. But these are things that kids are going to be exposed to. So at some point, you are going to have to have these conversations with them. And and in some cases, I think in this case in particular, it it's um, it ends up being I, I think 
a, a nice open door to have these conversations. I know we we didn't. We've sort of already had all these conversations, <laughs> and so this film didn't open any new territory uh, for for us. But I can totally see how it might be a nice entree. Although I found it interesting that there was that, as you note, there was smoking in the script originally, but they cut that. Right. Right. Yeah. Mr. Prendergast was a. Uh was a smoker and they decided to cut that and just, uh, I guess they just made him a pill popper instead. <laughs> so. Right. So the scale of social norms is, is interesting on this film. It is. Yes, it is. So anything else you want to say about the, the craft of the script of uh, Mr. Butler? I think that he's very sharp at, um, at how he puts a script together. Exposition is always a tricky thing to deliver and get across in a script without making it just, you know, screech the script to a halt and have these characters just explain, explain, explain. You've got this kind of elaborate story of the history of this town and the haunting of it. And I thought it was so brilliant to have that whole thing come out as kind of this this uh, practice for the school play, which I think is just one of the funniest scenes, um, you know, because you have just oh, such a wonderfully written theater teacher. It was. It's one of those. It's like total low hanging fruit. Like, what a great opportunity! Oh, to deliver that kind of exposition. Of course, <laughs> it's going to be a school play. That was brilliant. It was. It was just fantastic. Um, and I also another thing I love is is the way that he um, wrote this, shifting the antagonist around, and you never really quite knew who the antagonist was. Right. Um, initially, we have Alvin, who is a very antagonistic character toward uh, toward Norman. He's not the antagonist of the film. That kind of um, ends up, you know, initially falling on um, this curse and these zombies. You know, he's got to stop the witch's curse. And then all these zombies come out of the ground. And so now he's got to stop the zombies. Um, And then I thought it was really interesting that he actually ends up getting paired with his personal antagonist, Alvin. And they are actually in it together, which I thought was really great. And then it shifts, you know, once once we kind of realize that these zombies who were Puritans... um, are kind of there to help uh, Norman out. Then the the antagonism kind of shifts to the townspeople, and and they're all like this angry mob ready to rip everybody apart. And it's really kind of terrifying, almost more terrifying than anything else in the film, really. And then totally it sh- agree. Yeah, and then it shifts again to um, to the witch and Aggie, and um, and Norman has to kind of keep. Um, navigating each of these different, um, you quote unquote, bad guys as he gets to the big boss. And I thought that was so fascinating, the way that we had this shift as Norman was trying to figure out who is it I'm really trying to um, to stop here? Who, you know, who is the person who is overall really going to, going to end this? And Prendergast never really figured that out. He was always just kind of prolonging this and putting it off and putting it off. Norman was finally able to figure out exactly what that key was and able to stop it for good. And I thought that was such a strong way to write this script. And I think that it's brilliant the way that he says, uh, or sorry, the grandma says at the beginning of the film, why, you know, if only these people just sat down and talked about it, they could probably figure it all out. She kind of gives Norman the key right there at the beginning, which is just brilliant. And then he finally kind of takes that and has that moment with Aggie. And it just, I mean, that to me was like top-notch quality screenwriting. And I think Chris Butler really knocked it out of the park with this one. The most terrifying thing for me in this whole film, once you sort of uh, acclimate to it, as you say, it's the crowd stuff. The When the mob becomes the angry mob, that then becomes the cultural statement of the film. And it defines what I think, quite rightly, the kids can be most afraid of. 
and uh, and I think it makes a, a really powerful statement uh, in that regard. The the whole scene where uh, the kids run up and they see the mob fighting the zombies, and the kids say, "Oh my gosh, the zombies are eating them!" But it's really the mob that is the dominant position in this great fight in the streets. I mean, there's it, at no point is the it, do we feel like the zombies are <laughs> apart from the the initial scare. The zombies are not. Are not a force to be reckoned with. The mob is ready. They're trying to escape. <laughs> yes, they're trying to get away, and and uh, I, I find that just a, a great turnabout. Uh, Chris Butler is. Uh, let's see, he's uh, he's uh, he's a Brit. He's born in Liverpool. He found this. He started writing this uh, when they were working on Coraline and um, showed it to Travis Knight, uh, who was producing that one, and uh, the the. Uh, conversation went something like Knight read the first 30 pages and said, okay, where's the rest? And thus they, they start working on this one. So I think it's a, um, I think it's just a great story. Yeah. This was his, uh, directorial debut. He had, uh, he wrote this and then he, uh, presented box trolls. I'm not sure exactly what that means. And then he's now co-writing Kubo, uh, which is going to be coming mm-hmm. out in a couple months. So, uh, I should say has written Kubo since it's Right, likely close. Very, to very written. Yes, <laughs> very, yes. very done. And then he co. Very written. And then he co-directed this with Sam Fell, who has directed Flushed Away, Tale of Despero, um, and nothing since this. But I think Sam uh, and Sam co-directed both of those. I think, but Sam comes from a uh, you know that line of uh, co-directing animated features, and I think he kind of has proved that he knows how to kind of uh, put that stuff on screen. I, I enjoyed both of those films. Oh, I absolutely did. Despero, I thought, was just lovely. Such a great film. As a big fan of the of the original material, oh, it, yeah. was, it was really great. Absolutely. So in terms of the direction, I, I'm trying to figure out how to talk about directing a stop-motion film, especially, again, while watching all the behind-the-scenes stuff and seeing it all in time-lapse, like... You know, for for example, you make a note that there the that this has two very very long shots, right? Yeah. Potentially, I guess the longest in animated film, right? But what does that mean when it's stop motion? When there is no real shot, like the shot is an individual frame. I mean, it, it means that animator who was animating that shot spent a very long time working on it to make sure everything went exactly the way it needed to. Uh, both the character, the rigging anima- animation team, everybody had to work together to make sure the shot did what it needed to do. And the um, and then Chris and Sam were kind of overseeing it to make sure that it was it was. Uh, kind of telling the story that that shot needed to tell that things were moving as fast as they needed to or as slow as they needed to and they would be the ones who would decide we need to redo that shot we need to do a retake um, which does happen you know they had shots where yeah. they, they had to do retakes of because the character the reaction was too strong or too weak or the eye line was incorrect i mean there's i i think that it's it's a strange way to have to direct a story and i i'd be very curious to kind of be in on some some meetings as they kind of review the footage and make these decisions but i think most of the direction is probably happening I shouldn't say most of the direction is happening after the fact. I think they're probably there all through it. I mean, I, they were shooting this thing with 60 cameras at a time. Um, it makes me wonder how many different animators are shooting different scenes uh, simultaneously. And then these guys right. are just bouncing from room to room, stage to stage, kind of checking on each of the shots and looking at the framing. And, okay, oh, I see what you're doing here. That's an interesting thing. But particularly when you look at the size of the sets that they built. I mean, these incredibly detailed 
um, scale cities oh, yeah. uh, that they have that they have planned out and and laid out in this in in their studio. I mean, it, it's it's really an amazing amount of work. The thing that really stuck me when you look at the character design, not just the character design, the character manufacturing, right? It's all it, they were all built around these steel frames, these metal frames, ball and socket joint frames, and then they stick those in inside the mold and they make the mold. And to to watch these the the lead manufacturing puppet manufacturing folks talk about it um it, it is an incredible leap of faith not to know whether the the character is going to work until you get it out of the mold and finish making it given how long it takes to to make these things and the meticulous kind of nature of it and how frustrating it is when you know when they create a character that ends up just not working for some reason or another, the scale is off, the shoulders are in the wrong place, like it just ends up not moving naturally. And the, the amount of experimentation that goes on in, in creating a film like this is is pretty stunning. There was a character that they nicknamed um, the Moo Moo Woman. And I think you can see her at one point, I think she's standing with the guy who, toward the beginning of the film, notices Norman as he's walking to school and he stops and talks to the the dead raccoon mm-hmm. uh, or to the raccoon's ghost. And they just see him talking to the dead raccoon in the street. Right. Um, she was, I think, I believe the character they called the Moo Moo Woman. And they were never happy with that character, uh, that she came out and they always felt that she just looked like a guy in drag. And they couldn't, they just could never get that character to look right. So she ended up just being a character that they kind of used bits of, like they would take an arm and stick it in a corner when they needed an extra character on the edge of this frame <laughs> in the in the in a crowd shot or things like that. And so they were just, you know, it was kind of a bits and pieces sort of thing. And I think that, uh, yeah, I think that goes to show, you know, they they try to make these characters, but even then, sometimes they just don't end up right. Uh, first shot is this uh, Dutch angle shot of the brains on the floor. Right, the movie within with the bite movie. bite out of it. Yes, the movie within This is the opening credits of the movie within the movie. And then the red stiletto heel comes back on it, steps on it, and it squishes. And sticks, <laughs> sticks it to the shoe. <laughs> and sticks to the shoe. Yeah, it's pretty fantastic. And I think it sets up right away uh, the just kind of the spirit of this film. You know, it's it's scary. It's a little bit goofy. We get kind well, of. And it's been antiqued. The film treatment yes. is beautifully antiqued. Right. It actually feels like an old, scratchy film. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just fun. I mean, I I think that everything about that just just says, "Hey, we're going to have fun with this one." It's a little bit scary. It's a little bit uh, silly, and it's something that everybody can enjoy. We're setting the stage for the kind of fear that they want us to experience. Correct. Right? But it is fear. Correct. We're, we are in a space of fear. And the last shot uh, is what? The family's back together. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not the very first shot, but we do see that Norman is sitting there watching this movie with his grandmother. And so we do uh, do set up that Norman, you know, he enjoys being with his grandma. And then we find out his grandma's actually dead um, and nobody else can see her ghost. And so what's great about the last shot is we get the whole family sitting together, you know, Norman and his sister and his mom and dad and grandma, the ghost of grandma, all sitting there watching a movie at the end. And Perry, uh, Norman's dad, who actively dismissed everything Norman said and fought tooth and nail against uh, everything Norman said about his grandma being alive, um, now finally has a line where he's, you know, he actually says something that happens to be the exact same thing that, that grandma says. 
and just kind of showing that, you know, this this character has gone through an arc. He's grown and changed because of this uh, this journey that Norman has gone on. And I thought that was a really strong um, piece in the film here. This is one of those films where our protagonist, he grows, but he doesn't necessarily change so much. This is one where he grows in a way where he actually helps other people change. And I thought that was great to see. I think his dad is the is the one who we really see change here as he now acknowledges that, you know, I'm going to actively try to connect with my dead mother who is sitting in the room with me even though i can't see her well and that's what's so beautiful about it it's it is the entire family that's on an arc and uh, and i really like that resolution because you know we we see that sure norman norman has grown and changed in in the way that he presents in terms of his confidence in uh, amongst his peers his confidence in just being in the world even his confidence at home uh, just willing to continue to to watch these kinds of things, even though he knows his mother is not as keen on it. But the fact that the whole family sits down uh, really demonstrates that that his journey has impacted them, and I think that's an that's an important note. And that it you know in terms of its relationship to the very first shot, that uh, you know it is it is telling us that really it's it's not so bad. Yeah, there's nothing that's that you can't. There's no fear, even the kind of fear we we open the door to here, that you can't conquer. And he really, I mean, it's not just his family. He really opens everybody in town's eyes, right? Yes, absolutely. They all see the zombies, and they all see the zombies turn to ghosts, and they all kind of have that moment where they go, oh, maybe Norman isn't so crazy after all. That's the big awakening. Yeah. That's great. Okay, so what about uh, the cast, shall we? Yeah, I thought it would be good to start just acknowledging Heidi Smith, who actually came up with the character design, and then the lead animators, Travis Knight, who we've already talked about as uh, as uh, the CEO of the company, and uh, Jeff Riley and Peyton Curtis as the three lead animators. Um, those people obviously have a huge role in bringing these characters to life. Uh, but yes, of course, now we have the voice cast, starting with Cody Smith-McPhee as Norman. I think he is a fantastic talent. I think he just delivers a great performance. He's one of those actors that I think is really fascinating. It's been interesting kind of watching him uh, get older and find kind of the direction he's going in. Um, I haven't seen everything that he's been in. Um, The first thing that I saw him in was The Road, which I just absolutely love. And uh, I never saw Let Me In. I, I only saw the original of that one. Um, and then Young Ones, which I actually just watched for uh, because they did the trailer rewind of that one, um, and Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. So uh, I missed X Men Apocalypse, but yeah, he's in that one too. So, um, but I enjoy watching him. He's he's an actor who is really fascinating to watch on screen. I think there's a lot of internal stuff going on with him, and um, I don't know. I I think that he's going to be going places. I think so too. I mean, clearly he's already gone places. Well, I yes. Think the, the you know he's got quite a few, uh, quite a few credits uh, to his name. His one of his early uh, series um, pieces was Nightmares and Dreamscapes. It was the miniseries, the oh, Stephen yeah. King miniseries. I forgot yeah, about that. He is. He was in two of those. He is in. He's no um, no stranger to the darker stories. I, you know, I know you missed X-Men Apocalypse. I are on the record as not liking it. I was pretty disappointed by um, by it as the third outing. But I will say he was an interesting Nightcrawler. He played Kurt Wagner. 
And uh, he was an interesting Nightcrawler because I was so used to, um, you know, Nightcrawler as he was portrayed by Alan Cumming in X2. And I, and I was really disappointed he didn't come back. Alan Cumming, I thought he did a terrific job. And so it, it was a little tough to adjust to him as to uh, uh, Smith McPhee as Nightcrawler. But I, in the end, I think he actually delivered a, a fine performance of a pretty complex character. Certainly complex uh, uh, production. You know, it's interesting. He is in an Australian TV miniseries called Gallipoli that is about four four young Australian boys who join the military and are sent to Gallipoli. Uh, That's interesting. I'd be curious to see how the how that uh, miniseries compares uh, with the movie. He is uh, he is an Australian uh, himself. uh, And yeah, he was he was great. You know, and I got to say, paired with uh, Cody. I just love Tucker Albrisi as Neil. There is something about this kid's, uh, just his sensibility uh, and just his sense of being a kid. I don't even know what it is, but he just feels so honest and uh, is just there as a kid. And he talks like a kid and he acts like a kid. And I mean, I know he is a kid, but it's just he feels so authentic. And you don't always find that with kid performances in films. I love him in this film. I do too. He is a riot. And he is in a whole bunch of stuff that I have seen, uh, which is also odd because uh, I have seen all of, my goodness, why have I seen all of Good Luck Charlie, for example? Uh, Why have I seen all of Lab Rats? Go ahead, ask. I don't know. Uh, but he's in all of these things, and he's he is a fantastically comic uh, gifted actor. I can't wait to see what comes from him. I feel ashamed, but the trailer pick that I should have done should have been Monster, Monster Trucks, Trucks because he's in it. <laughs> oh, I just don't want to talk about that one, but uh, yeah, he is in that one, and he's in all the buddies movies. He is really he is buddy in, yeah. with those buddies, those dogs. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's even funnier that he's in a couple of episodes of Children's Hospital. <laughs> I haven't seen I haven't seen every episode of Children's Hospital, but my goodness, is that not a show that I would have seen in the lineup of Tucker Albrisi? Too funny. <laughs> I, I have to I wanna be a part of that. Well he's he's just great. I love uh I love his personality and I I think that he, he just really brings an authenticity and paired with Paired with Cody, I think the two of them really create an interesting relationship that doesn't even start off as kind of like a, a best friend sort of relationship. You know, the beginning of that is scripted where Norman doesn't even want Neil to be around him. And I love that Neil's yeah. kind of that pestering kid who kind of just wants to wants to go do something with this guy. Well, it's the story of, you know, it's worth it giving the odd kid a chance, yeah, right? right? It's worth it. The relationship pays off when you give the odd kid a chance. And I love that. So optimistic and hopeful and kind. And he is he is really the, the beating heart of, of the film. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Anna Kendrick plays the older sister. I did not I did not know it was her when I first saw this. I could not I, I had to look and see who it was. Uh, she's uh, she's really fun as Norman's sister, and I don't know. She just brings this uh, <laughs> this total cheerleader sense uh, to the role that I love uh, coming out of uh, out of her. She's not normally like that, and uh, when she gets that way, I think it's really funny. She really she is. didn't do cups. She didn't do cups in here. Did you know that she's um, 
uh, well, speaking of animated films, she's in Trolls, which is coming out later this year. Um, I think yes. I'd probably rather watch Paranorman uh, over Trolls, um, just from watching the <laughs> teaser. I don't know. But um, this has a little bit of more of kind of that Mike and Dave need wedding dates uh, character sort of a vibe for her. You know, she's kind of that just a real uptight, uh, whiny character. And I, I don't know, she seems like she's... Just uh, she'd be happy to inhabit that other world and is saddled with this world with Norman and her family. <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, Casey Affleck as Mitch, the uh, the the hulking brute, uh, uh, older sh- brother. We should say all of these characters just have such great character design, and he is just designed in like the most impossible way i mean it's like uh, it's just like the tiniest waist just this incredible pecs i mean you know just the the football player one of my favorite moments with him is when what he when the zombie's eyes open after he's hit it with his car and he's holding its head and he kicks the head away and and he's just like did you see that and they're like they everybody thinks it's because it's a zombie he's just like i probably kicked that a hundred yards <laughs> Uh, he was the uh, is the first openly gay character in a mainstream animated movie. And and Chris Butler uh, said that the character was explicitly connected with the film's message. Chris said, if we're saying to anyone that watches this movie, don't judge other people, then we've got to have this, that strength of our convictions. Um, and I think that says a lot. I think that they went to this place where it's not about judging. It's about, um, you know, talking through things. And, you know, in a time when society could certainly use a little bit more of that and, uh, you know, avoid some of the horrors that go on in our society, I think that's a, it's a pretty strong message even today. I do, too. I think he's uh, and, and, you know, I think that the if, if I'm going to have a problem with a performance, it it's likely going to be in in Mitch. Because Mitch, I think he's, I don't know, he treads on this line of being the dumb jock. We want him to be the dumb jock. And too often in the film, I, I feel like he's drifting toward catatonic. And it's a it's not so much Affleck's voice performance, but the actual physical performance of the character that, you know, I feel like I know what they were going for, that this big brooding sort of brick house of a character doesn't, you know, doesn't move unless necessary. But sometimes he's just there. He's just a piece of furniture. And I I found myself getting a little bit lost on him. I guess it didn't bug me too much. I, I thought he was fine the way he was. Uh, but I can see your point. I think that's an interesting and valid uh, note to make. Well, thank you. I do feel Talk, talk one up that's, for you. <laughs> I'm surprised at just how good that felt. Christopher Minsplas says Alvin. Uh, you know what's so interesting about this? He is he's the bully, sort of, at the beginning, but only insofar as he acts like a dope bully. It's pretty short-lived any perceived fear that Norman has of this guy. He doesn't ever seem necessarily threatened uh, for very long. No, it's not a real threat. I mean, I I like that it kind of sets him up like he's kind of that antagonistic character in Norman's life, even though Norman doesn't necessarily take him on as an antagonist. And I, I, like I said earlier, I think it's so interesting that Norman actually ends up getting saddled with Alvin as they enter uh, Prendergast's house later and have to actually fight off the zombies when they first appear. Uh, Otherwise, I like Christopher Mintz-Plass. I like his voice a lot uh, for these kinds of characters. I think he was really funny. Yeah, I agree. Leslie Mann... And uh, Jeff Garland as mom and dad. Yeah, uh, Chris and uh, Sam talked about how they really wanted kind of that dysfunctional Spielbergian family. And I think that, uh, you know, having these two as the parents 
and kind of just some of the improv fights that they have, I think, uh, really work to sell that. It's just, it's kind of perfect to have these two um, as the parents. I love them. I do too. Elaine Stritch, uh, awesome to see her or to hear her in this. She plays the ghost grandma. Did you ever see that documentary um, about her life? Um, it's one of those ones that I, I had on my list and I totally forgot I ever wanted to watch it until I saw the credits of this. I'm like, oh, Lane Stretch, oh, that documentary, Shoot Me, that I wanted to watch. And it totally uh, got me all excited about watching that again. I, I, I never saw it. I didn't either. Never saw it. No, no, I know nothing of it. Well, I'm going to have to track it down and watch it. You should do that. What I know of Elaine Stritch most recently is uh, the fantastic 30 Rock. She played Jack's mom, and she was the gem of the series in a series <laughs> full of gems. Right. Uh, but 77 credits dating back to, jeez, uh, 48. 1948. And then we have uh, Bernard Hill as the judge. Very kind of small part, but uh, I, I, I don't know. I guess I don't have a whole lot to say with him because his part was so small, uh, other than, hey, it's the captain of the Titanic and, and yeah. uh, King Theoden <laughs> from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, and you know, don't, forget, don't forget the hit uh, Phylos in The Scorpion King. Oh, Am I right? That's right. Scorpion King? Yep. Yeah, it was good to uh, sort of hear him. A few words. Uh, and uh, then uh, Jodell Furland as Angry Aggie. The um, second film that uh, she is in where she is a, a young girl accused of uh, of being a witch and killed, I think. She's uh, also is in uh, Silent Hill with the, the same situation happening. I didn't see it. Did you? No, I didn't see it. And I think that she was also in uh, Terry Gilliam's Tideland, which I really hated. As much as I love Brazil... Tideland yeah. really uh, angered me, which, you know, I, I think Terry Gilliam was okay with people being angered as long as it it, it created some emotion, and it certainly did. <laughs> she's she's had a, a lot of nerd parts, uh, with which I think is great, you know, a, apart from, you know, you already mentioned Silent Hill, uh, but she did, uh, she's the voice of Little Sister in, in uh, the Bioshock games. Uh, and she is. She was in Twilight Saga. Um, she's. Uh, but I saw her most recently in uh, a, a. I think a little known. I'm going to say a little known sci-fi show called Dark Matter. Um, that uh, she played five on Dark Matter. I think Dark Matter was a really clever show. I th- I'm not sure that it ever got more than its initial 14 episodes. I have heard nothing of it coming back for a second season, but it's a really clever show with a really clever premise and uh it's worth catching on Netflix. Huh. So, I, there you go. I'll have to check that one Little out. Plug. Yeah, she was great. That's uh Janelle Furland. Uh this one surprised me maybe more than any others. Tempest Bledsoe. Yeah, Sheriff Hooper. That was one of those ones where I was like, oh, I know her name from The Cosby Show. I haven't heard her since The Cosby Show. I mean, she's been in stuff, but it's she's one of those people who has a is a busy busy enough career. But uh, I, I think that, um, yeah, she's just kind of in and out of things I just haven't heard of. I had very little image of her after, you know, that Cosby and Different World uh, era. Mm-hmm. And then there is nothing until really this. I feel like I I hadn't heard anything of her until this. I was actually surprised she had 25 other credits. Right. Yeah, me too. 
Um, let's see. Anybody else? We've got Alex Bornstein as Mrs. Hensher, and of course John Goodman as Mr. Pendergast. Yeah, Alex Bornstein. Um, you know, I I just I have to acknowledge her because I think Mrs. Hensher is such a fun character. I mean, that theater teacher is so over the top and just so big. Um, Alex, I think this is just one of those roles where you get to have just so much fun. And so I think that she really brought it. And John Goodman gets to be kind of a little out there as Mr. Prendergast. Uh, and, you know, it was fun to see him kind of floating around as the ghost. But I think he's that character that for me um, might be kind of the, uh, you know, the the Casey Affleck for you, where I, I feel like he might they might have taken him a little too far for me at times. Well, Andy, I don't agree but I think it's a really valid comment. <laughs> See, it, it feels good, it right? It does. Yes, it does. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for turning that on me and let me uh, get a taste of my own medicine. <laughs> well, allow me to be your quid. That's fantastic. Quid to your quo. <laughs> Uh, all right, how, let's talk a little bit more about getting the thing made. We talked a, a little bit about this up front, um, about how the thing got made. I'm still uh, fascinated that they ended up shooting this on Canon 5D Mark IIs. That's a, uh, that's a, I, it makes me think, what have I been doing with my camera gear, mostly? <laughs> right, right, yeah. No, it's just a, it's one of those funny things. It's, it's interesting that that's how they shot this. With 60 of them, though, it just, that kind of blows yeah. my mind. I mean, geez. I mean, that's a lot of cameras. I mean, they did shoot this 3D, though. So, you know, obviously with the 3D, they're going to have to be shooting everything with two cameras. That is, uh, what's the word we use? Complex. It is. I that's can, the word. I, that's the industry word. Yeah, this was the second, uh, second full-length feature animated film ever to be shot 3D after Coraline. There are a few shots, a few very brief shots that showcase for me not just just beauty in the art form, but unparalleled cleverness in how they actually get the shot done. The first one that made me lean forward in my chair and rewind to watch it again and again is when uh, Norman rides by the breakdancing scene Mm -hmm. on his bike and he hits Alvin and Alvin falls and the camera does this little flippy dippy turn as Alvin is falling and ends up under his kind of under his legs, shooting up the hill as Norman rides away. I I can't conceive of how they figured that out. I can't conceive of how the 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 team uh, Tristan Oliver, uh, cinematographer, and team figured out how to place the cameras in such a way to achieve that shot. It blew me away. It blew my mind. It's very complex. Yeah. I mean, don't you have some of those shots? Don't you have some of those shots in the film? What was your favorite single shot in the film? You've seen this several times. Go ahead. Favorite single <laughs> shot. My my favorite single shot actually is the the really long shot where we are introduced to um, kind of stepping into Norman's world, where it's it's the uh, Sean Connery starts going from Russian to English shot. Right where we're we're kind of walking along with Norman as he's talking to the air and just saying hi to things, and the camera kind of moves around behind him right up close to his face and then pulls away and continues to spin, but pulling away from him now as now we reveal that there are ghosts everywhere and he's actually talking to all these ghosts. The shot is a full 360. It's really long, so you see a lot of stuff going on. You see the whole scope of the town and this road that he's walking along. Plus, you go from no ghosts to ghosts everywhere. And that is a really interesting blend, not just of the stop-motion animation that they use, but also of the 
all of the work that they do of the uh, the digital set um, extensions that they add, these digital ghosts sure. that they add. I mean, there's so much stuff going on in that shot. Um, I mean, it really just, it's just kind of stunning to watch it, just how long it is and how beautiful it is. And it just flows perfectly. And the fact that, you know, I mean, geez, you go back through something like that and you see a, a, a hitch in the animation and you feel like, okay, well, we're going to have to go do that again. 12 more weeks of trying to get that one shot. I mean, I can't even fathom the um, the stress that I would be under you know, trying to get those little things right oh, on a shot like that. I can't fathom the stress you'd be under either. You'd be a mess. <laughs> yes, I would. I'd be calling you every day. This is <laughs> They used a color 3D printer to create the character faces. This is the first animated film to do that. And this allowed them to do a, a number of things, not the least of which is create a boatload of expressions. Yeah, I, I think it was like something like 800,000 different faces. Yes. Yeah. That is crazy. And this is color, which was a huge benefit because Coraline, they they came up with this 3D color printer, uh, this rapid prototype technology that they were using to actually print, but it was all black and white. And they still had to go in and actually hand paint every face. That's why like on Coraline, Coraline only had like three freckles because you couldn't, you know, they were, it was so hard to make sure those freckles were in the exact same spot. Otherwise they would like be jiggling around on her face as, as uh, they, right. as she would uh, be walking around. This one, they were able to actually print everything in, um, in, in color. And so you have those beautiful colors built into it. And then they do some funky process. Like after they, they kind of pull the, the face out, they like dip it in super glue or something and they let, let it dry out, which gives it kind of the shine and kind of that natural skin look, I guess, which really it's kind translucent. of- yeah, It's translucent. Yeah. It, and then you get those amazing shots where like when the sun is behind Norman, you get the sun actually coming through his ear and you get those beautiful With, things that you, like you'd never be able to get if this was like claymation. No, absolutely. It was, it was, uh, it, that's, that's what I mean in my notes. I wrote, this is, this is a film that really demonstrates that they've, they've achieved, you know, bringing life to these characters right it's because life is not just about movement but life is about those things like the translucency and the the um, the the glow of of skin it really it, it felt like a, a new level uh, as a result of this tool yeah production design nelson lowry uh was the production designer pete oswald concept artist ross stewart concept artist ian mcnamara production illustrator and trevor Dahmer, concept artist. These guys were given a, a mandate to create this world with no straight lines. And you've got these really funky car shapes, house shapes, trees, animals, people, uh, even Norman's nostrils. I love how they're just like, you know, kind of offset. Nothing is, nothing lines up. I just love the design. I love the way that these guys put this world together. Um, and there's so much detail. I mean, not just in the characters, but just look at everything else around. The detail of a swing, the detail of a label on something. I love the signs all through Blythe Hollow. You know, welcome to Blythe Hollow, a great place to hang. You know, I don't know. And witchy, <laughs> witchy wieners. I mean, everything just made me laugh. It's just, I, it's one of those things where just going through the town, I just wanted to go back again and just kind of look at all those signs again and just all the little uh, tchotchkes that the people had in their windows because it's all that just like silly tourist stuff. And those are all things that these guys came up with to sit in there. I mean, it's just, it really is a lot of work. It's not just, I mean, you know, a production designer has a lot of work anyway in a film, you know, they're, they're doing the exact same thing, filling the space and, and creating the world. These guys are doing it on a much different scale and usually they have to fabricate everything. So it really, it really kind of blows me away. 
it blows me away too. Absolutely, that that it's not just. I mean, you said it. It's not just filling space. It's creating the space and then filling it. Yeah. Uh, and and that's the the part that I think is is such a a masterpiece. The backyard, all the little statue areas. They're looking at the at the ghost dog as the boys are out there looking at the dog. I mean, all the little vases and all of the little statues and signs, and uh, it was just it's perfect. It's just great. Well, and look at like the trees. I mean, when the trees are all kind of you know exploding out of the ground and keeping people from getting through, or when the witch's face like comes out of the tree and just like how like all the grain detail in the little pieces of yeah. bark as all of that kind of forms. It's 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 fascinating. I I would love to sit and kind of watch, but I also feel like I'd probably be bored. I'd love to watch it in time lapse so I can see it <laughs> moving a little faster. <laughs> because again, Andy would be really stressed out. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, Emanuela Cozzi uh, is the storyboard artist on this one. What is the importance of a storyboard artist in a stop motion film? You know, this is one of those. Um, elements that I think is really important. I mean, I wish that I could say specifically like I had talked to them and knew exactly. But um, my impression from hearing them talk about it is that, you know, this person is really kind of making sure that every shot is in there. And I think that's critical in animation, not just stop motion animation, but also any animation where you aren't you aren't going and shooting, you know, coverage from all these different angles, and then the editor gets to play around with it. You're kind of doing that ahead of time. And the storyboard artist really has to kind of figure all that out, work with the team to really know exactly what all these frames are going to be so that when they go and actually design the sets and design the actors and or the characters and design the um, the way that these things are moving, all of it's in place and it's all going to work. Um, so I think the storyboard artist ends up becoming very critical as a pre-production element just to make sure that they have what they need when they get down to actually making it. Uh, costumes, Deborah Cook. Love those tracksuits. <laughs> I love that they they uh, got the idea for Grandma's tracksuits from <laughs> Estelle Getty on, on uh, Golden Girls. I, you know, I, I love, again, the behind-the-scenes stuff about costuming, I think, is really fascinating because they're, they're just making little tiny costumes. <laughs> they're little tiny for little tiny people. Oh. And they still look really good. They're all, yeah, they're all hand-sewn. I mean, they're all authentic, actual costumes, yeah. even the shoes. I mean, it's it's uh, pretty interesting that they go to such detail. But uh, I think that's, again, why it looks so good. Uh, the effects, uh, the use of effects, and let's talk about visual effects in this in, at this point, because I I'm, I know that one of the things that really sets modern stop motion apart is the is the frame blending that goes on in, in you know in this sequence. I mean, you can do it right in Premiere, right? I mean, I I think I need a plug-in in Final Cut, but but I think Premiere has frame digital frame building built in. You know, I have no idea. I have no idea. Oh, I just I know that you, I thought you spent a lot of time playing with it. Is all? No, I never do. <laughs> I, I pay people to do that. <laughs> uh, no, the animated effects: uh, Andrew Narot, Joe Gorski, and Grant Laker, and then the visual effects: Brian Vant Hull. I'm not quite sure how to say that uh, properly, but I think that taking the visual digital effects paired with the actual effects that they're using um, on set and finding a way to uh, to blend all of this. And not to mention, they also blend in like traditional 2D animation into it too. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's fascinating to me the way these guys um, really took all of the tools that they could. Again, this, this kind of goes back to James Cameron talking about T2, how it takes filmmakers who understand the tools that they have in front of them and how to use them in the best way possible to create 
the end result. And I think that this team knew how to do that. Plus, these guys also um, were able to use um, the rigging team uh, smartly. And I think, you know, effects when it comes to uh, finding ways to properly rig things, um, these guys really mastered it. And, uh, you know, you have to paint a lot of stuff out with the with the rigging. But, I mean, the rigging tools that they have, I mean, just from the simple swing, gently blowing in the wind, to the way that these trees were growing, like I said, to things that are exploding or falling, like, you know, everything that's in the air has to be attached to a rig that they are, they are manipulating as it kind of moves through the air, whether it's a piece of dirt falling off a zombie or whether it's spit coming a out of his mouth. Or a kid riding a bike. Or a kid riding a bike. Or the cop like crashing over the top of a car and flying through the air and crashing into dad. All of this stuff is stuff that these, these riggers have to deal with. It's, it's uh, um, working those guys with the effects team. It's just, it's a level of production that I don't fully understand, but I really appreciate that these guys are able to do that in a way that makes these magic movies work. How did uh, how this one perform with the in the awards season? It did pretty well for itself. I mean, it got a lot of uh, a, a lot of nominations. It it did get nominated for best um, best uh, animated feature at the Oscars um, and the BAFTAs, but it lost to Brave in both cases. I think a little more importantly for animated films, the Annie Awards. Um, this one was nominated for I think it was eight awards. Animated effects, directing, storyboarding, writing, production design, picture, character animation, and character design. Um, it did win character animation and character design. The others it lost to either Rise of the Guardians, Wreck-It Ralph, or Brave. Those seem to be the other uh, films that kind of were sweeping the Annie's. Um, and all I think all strong films in their own way. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, I think... It still did really well for itself, and I think the fact that it won for character animation and character design really um, is what gives this film such a, uh, a unique personality because that design, I think, was so strong. Um, I think, most importantly, this film did get nominated for GLAD's first ever PG-rated movie that was nominated for a media award for the Outstanding Film um, uh, because I think largely because it did have that uh, that openly gay character in it. Isn't it interesting, uh, do you think, 2013 Best Animated Feature offered Brave and Wreck-It Ralph and three stop-motion features, The Pirates, Band of Mitfits, Misfits, Paranorman, and Frankenweenie. Yeah. Is that interesting? It, right on the heels of talking about how there aren't all that many people doing uh, a lot of great uh, stop-motion, and yet here we are completely missing the fact that there were three in one year that actually made it to the Academy Awards. Uh, that's pretty interesting. I wonder if it is, Andy. What are you, what are you looking for? I'm, well, I'm on pins and needles. I just had to make sure that they were actually 3D animated or animated uh, stop motion films and that they weren't you know, those fake stop motion. Aardman got a bunch of crap for doing a film. Maybe it was flushed away. That was, it was supposed to be kind of there it was the thing that fl- that uh, those guys did that was actually computer animated designed to look like stop motion that's the one that caused the ruckus oh that is i can imagine there being a ruckus about that mm-hmm. the purist would have nothing of it <laughs> uh, editing we've we've talked a little bit about cutting this together christopher murray did the editing um uh, nothing else to add no i i think uh the, yeah the only other thing was just we already mentioned john bryan as the composer but i think uh 
I I loved that he really kind of tried to tie in nods to other horror scores throughout, particularly uh, John Carpenter's Moog Synthesizer had some great little uh, moments that felt very, um, very much like uh, Carpenter. I loved his ringtone. It was really good. Lots of good stuff. Uh, okay. Well, I think it's probably uh, uh, time for you to fill me in on how it did uh, by the numbers. Yeah. Interestingly, the mo- this movie premiered in uh, Mexico. I-, I don't know why, but it did. Um, it opened August 17th, 2012. Uh, the budget for this was $60 million. Um, I couldn't find anything as far as prints and advertising. This film ended up making domestically about $56 million and internationally about $52 million. So all told, it ended up grossing about, you know, $108 million. So it did uh, make a profit. And uh, even though I think Travis Knight said that, you know, he felt like it was uh, um, not performing as well as he had hoped, uh, it still ended up making an adjusted profit per finished minute of about $500,000. That's not a bad haul. Not too bad not at all. Not a bad haul. Let's do it, Andy. Let's rank it. Yes. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you will see all of the films that we have talked about on this very show over the years. And you're going to add Paranorman to your collection, and we're going to start now. We're going to rank it. Filmo a filmo. Paranorman versus... The Long Kiss Goodnight. <laughs> it's kind of our new old brother block. I, I'm going to... I think I would watch Paranorman first. I love both of them, but I'm going to say Paranorman. Oh. Yeah, you weren't expecting surprised. that, were you? I'm not at all. Wait to hear my I star ranking. I my scissors out. <laughs> Paranorman or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Oh, Andy. This is tricky. Is it? I think I'm going to go Paranorman on this one. I, uh, I'm pretty torn on this one because I certainly love Eternal Sunshine of the spotless mind but i'm gonna say paranorman i don't know if you saw that coming or not (laughs) i did not i had my rock ready that's right paranorman or the french connection this might be a principled loss but i'm gonna say the french connection all right you say the french connection i'm saying paranorman (laughs) (laughs) okay you know what good (laughs) i i love french connection i honestly do so yeah oh me too uh paranorman or brazil (laughs) <laughs> no way no way you say uh paranorman on this one there is no way you want to find out i do <laughs> so badly i do well what are you gonna say i'm gonna say brazil so am i <laughs> <laughs> but we got pretty high up there didn't we we sure did that's right didn't see that coming paranorman not at all <laughs> i know paranorman or time bandits I would watch Paranorman before Time Bandits. I love Time Bandits, but I'm actually going to say Paranorman. <laughs> yes, you are. I really, in terms of a movie for kids, like it, it, like this is this it for me. This this has it. They both they nailed it. They both are really dark for kids, and I, I definitely like yeah. that. Um, yeah, I just I I don't know what it was about watching Paranorman this time, but the humor, the script, the characters, the uh, just the way that everything unfolded, the arcs, everything really worked for me. I just really fell in love with this movie a hundred times more than I did uh, when I saw it the first time. <laughs> Next up, Paranorman or Snowpiercer? Uh, I I'm I will say Paranorman again. Me too. <laughs> 
Wow. <laughs> Every one of these I'm expecting. I'm expecting the SmackDown. Every one of them. This is too much. I know. Paranorman or Casino Royale. Casino Royale. Yes. Casino Royale. <laughs> <laughs> Paranorman or Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Paranorman. I'm going to say Paranorman too. <laughs> Look at that. Was that a, like the first time in, I don't know how long, where we didn't have to do any rock, paper, scissors? I know. It's been, well, it's a gentleman's game, Andy. We did all right. <laughs> Number 18. Wow. That's right. You cracked the top 20 with your stop motion animated film. I did all right, didn't I, Andy? You did, did good for right, yourself. All you right, did all good. Right. That's right. Yes, you did. <laughs> that was super fun. Uh, so that was it. What does that do to your uh, star rating for letterbox.com slash the next reel? I am four and a half. That's that may be the first genuine surprise I have. Were you expecting it to be just a straight up five? Yes, I was. Where is that half star? Where is the half star of Andy Love? I, I feel like the half star is is some of the the uh, characterization of Prendergast. Um, I just feel like there's something with him that seems a little too silly at times for me. Um, I can understand, you know, the kind of the goofiness of him for kind of the, the kids and everything. But for me, um, that element uh, just kind of was a little too much. And I just didn't quite click with it as much as the rest of the film. Well, I'm going to be four and a half stars because of the characterization of Mitch. <laughs> Touche. There you have it. Touche. <laughs> Excellent. That was super fun, Andy. That was a good one and a good conversation. Where do we go from here? Well, we're going to wrap up our vacation challenge with my half of it. We're going to be talking about uh, my favorite end-of-the-world comedy, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. All right. That one I look forward to. I did finish watching it. I can't wait to talk about it. You know what's funny? Uh, Dr. Strangelove isn't actually in it all that much. No, he's not. But uh, but boy, is <laughs> he a memory an, of a, it was like character. <laughs> he sure is. That's a riot. Yeah, I look forward to talking about that one too. Uh, before that, uh, immediately before that, we've got a three of a kind from the good Steve Sarmento. Uh, it's uh, it's a head, hand, heart montage from Steve uh, next week. So I look forward to that short coming up on Tuesday. Nice. I think that's all we've got, Andy. I think I need to go to bed. What was that? Now I want you to try that again, but with conviction. My reputation is at stake here. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon uh, always doeth. <laughs> this is, uh, some of these one stars were really delightful. Yes, indeed. In this case, I'm bringing you one from Daddy Bear, who watched this film on January 14th, 2013. He says, it's a horrible kids movie. He rented this to watch with my children and ended up cutting it off. We did finish the movie later without the children. I, ab- I was absolutely disgusted that somebody could promote this as a kids movie. One of the first things out of the main character's mouth was that he is watching sex and violence on TV. One star. Shocking. I, you know, you just see things different ways. That's all I'm saying. 
Yeah. These people. Well, I have a one star also by unhappy parent who says, not for kids. I'm pretty reasonable with what my three and seven year old girls watch. We even watch James Bond movies occasionally. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say this was not the family movie I thought it would be after watching the trailer. I don't even know where to go with this one because <laughs> I, I, mean, I think, wow. Yeah. I mean, James Bond movies, four year, three and seven year old. I mean, I've watched James Bond movies with my kids and I feel like I constantly have to cover their eyes because of the sexuality and the, the suggestive <laughs> things that happen with the women in that, uh, in those films. It's, it's, uh, it's crazy. And to compare that as the favor- favorable film to this as the unfavorable film, I just don't even see that. Why did they paint the naked lady gold, Daddy? <laughs> How do you answer that to your three-year-old? <laughs> right. Why does she take all of her clothes off when she's getting into bed with him? <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.